Welcome back to episode 10 of The Conspiracy Skeptic, a roughly 12-part look at the great conspiracies of today and the not-too-distant past. I'm your conspiracy skeptic, Carl Mamer. All right. A listener noted about this podcast that the host is a, quote, sassy Canadian. I'll take it. But most of my conspiracy stuff is about the USA. I don't think she was complaining. It was just an observation. The USA generates pretty much the most of everything, so it's no doubt most of the conspiracy topics will involve the USA at some level. But that got me thinking about Canadian conspiracies. We do have necessarily a bunch of polite but bland people with an international reputation for being lousy tippers. And just like my podcast seems to have a focus on American conspiracies, Canadian conspiracies seem to have a focus on the USA and fears of domination by the USA. It's no surprise. One, Canadians tend to define Canada as the not-America. Canada has public health care, unlike America. Canada has gun control, unlike America. Canadians like to play it safe, not like American high rollers. Canadians spell color with a U, and God loves us more for it, not like those lazy Americans. Two, Canada was ultimately forged in response to threats of invasion from the USA. Much of the division of our powers between the federal and provincial levels was based on defending Canada from another 1812-type invasion. The federal government got what was considered the expensive stuff in the 19th century, like maintaining a 50,000-man army, while the provinces got the inexpensive stuff, like health care, education, and social services. The first conspiracy is the Avro Arrow Conspiracy. The Avro Arrow was a pretty cool-looking delta-wing supersonic jet fighter designed in Canada by the Avro Aircraft Company in the 1950s. The jet was intended to do Mach 2, which was pre-50s and still pretty cool for today. The program was cancelled by the Diefenbaker government in 1959, and as some Canadian aviation fans claim, all of Canada's dreams of being a high-tech superpower that is feared by the world, and America, died the day the program was scrubbed. Conspiracy theorists take it a step further, not blaming, say, the traditional Canadian attitude to play it safe. No, they believe the Avro Arrow was cancelled on orders from America. The story goes the USA was afraid Canada would come to dominate the skies with this super-advanced fighter jet. America would lose its lead in military aviation, and, well, the arrow had to go. I have a friend, Martin, who owned a bookstore, and one day he opened a box sent to him by a publisher. Upon seeing what books were in the box, Martin let out a cry of anguish. Oh no, another Avro Arrow book, he moaned. I'll have to deal with the cult of the Arrow people for the next couple months. I guess he came to call people buying books on the Avro Arrow Cult of the Arrow because they weren't content to simply buy the books and then exit his store in an orderly, peaceful manner. If you've worked in retail, you immediately know the type. They had to belly up to the cash and convince Martin all of Canada's problems could be blamed on the cancelling of the Arrow program. These are people who will well up in tears as if the loss of the Arrow program was the loss of their own child. Now, the problem with the cult of the Arrow people is it's all predicated on a slippery slope argument. If Canada didn't cancel the Arrow, Canadian aviation would dominate the world, we'd be selling arrows to nations all around the world, and nations would bow to Canada in deference to our vast power. 
I have to point out Sweden makes some pretty advanced fighter designs. The USA has never stopped Swedish fighter development. And despite for several decades having fighters that were arguably a generation ahead of the rest of the world, Sweden is still Sweden. It's still pretty much known for blonde wood furniture and blonde women. No one really goes, ooh, you're from Sweden, makers of the Saab Gripen JS-39, please marry my daughter. While some think of the cancellation of the arrow as a lack of foresight, it appears to me an act of foresight. Two years previous to the cancellation of the program, the Soviets launched Sputnik. It's important to be clear what the role of the arrow was. The arrow was not an air superiority fighter. It wasn't a dogfighter. It had one role. It was meant to fly very fast, very straight, and very high, and shoot down Soviet bombers lumbering over the North Pole. As history proved out, not only was this fighter never needed, but ICBMs quickly made its role moot. It seems pointless to spend national treasure on a weapon system designed to stop bombers nuking what was reduced to rubble an hour before by ICBMs and SLBMs. The Arrow would have very little use as a dogfighter, and besides Canada, there were few nations on Earth that would have bought the Arrow. Adding fuel to the conspiracy fire was a CBC miniseries about the Avro Arrow. It starred Dan Aykroyd, who is a Canadian and not very funny these days. In one poignant scene in the miniseries, Eisenhower is shown demanding Diefenbaker cancel the Arrow and, quote, buy American. Holy revisionism, Batman. What's probably sadder is Canada lost a real opportunity to grab a large share of the aerospace industry because it pursued jet fighter development instead of civil aviation. Avro was one of the first companies to come out with a jetliner, but the jetliner was cancelled because resources were felt better spent on an earlier jet fighter, the CF-100. The timing could not have been worse. The British Comet jetliners were falling out of the sky due to the unknown phenomenon of metal fatigue, and Boeing had yet to introduce the 707. The Avro was the only trustworthy jetliner on the market. It had tons of excellent reviews, but the passenger jet was scrubbed. Now, don't get me wrong, I think every nation should have a strong defense program. I'm no pacifist. However, it seems manifestly irresponsible to think that defense spending is a boon to the economy. If you build tanks, you employ a lot of people building the tank. But once the tank is built, it sits there in a field and does no work. It brings no efficiency to the economy. If you build tractors, on the other hand, you employ as many people, but the tractor does work in the field. It brings efficiency to the economy. One may argue the Red Queen race, inherent in military development, has spin-off benefits for civilian use, although conceivably private industry could make more efficient use of that money on civilian research projects. Along those lines, the silver lining in the cancellation of the Aero Project was the engineers weren't out of work for long. They found key positions in the American space program. Canadians should take pride in our contribution to one of the greatest feats of engineering, putting man on the moon, not another killing machine in a sky crowded with killing machines. Another problem with the claim America killed the Arrow is America itself helped Canada in the development and testing of the Arrow. As well, America was developing a fighter to fulfill a similar role, namely the F-108, Rapier. America, too, saw the futility of this kind of design and quickly switched to multi-role fighter bombers like the F-4 Phantom. So what would it take to falsify my belief that the era was a good thing and it was cancelled because America feared competition? 
Well, I sure would like to see documents from America that direct such pressure. Our second major Canadian conspiracy is again based on fear of American influence and intervention into our peaceable, dull Canadian approach to world domination. In this case, the conspiracy involves an out-and-out -out invasion by the USA in an attempt to gain control of Canada's water, energy resources, wealth, and 30 million curiously attractive people. This one you don't hear about so much these days, but I would imagine with the troubles brewing in the markets in the USA, it might be in for some kind of revival with a few modifications. This nefarious plot opens in the early 1960s. Dag Hammarskjöld, the uh, Secretary General of the UN, was flying around Africa trying to settle a brush war, and his plane crashed into a Zambian hill. Despite three independent inquiries that determined the most likely explanation was pilot error, conspiracy theorists believe powerful mining interests had his plane shot down because Dag might have settled the brush war in a way that wasn't favorable to an evil mining cabal. Desmond Tutu claimed to have turned up documents implicating British and American secret services in a plot to assassinate Dag. However, it's also speculated the documents were former Soviet forgeries, meant to sow distrust between a South Africa about to rejoin the world economy and the Western industrialized nations who would be getting first crack at this market. So, we now fast forward to the 1980s. The same cabal owned a pair of mines in the USA and in Canada. In the early 1980s, the Canadian mine was making all kinds of crazy profits, which is of no surprise, as it's run by efficient, smart Canadians. Its American counterpart, being run by those fat, lazy Americans you always see on TV, who keep shooting their co-workers, couldn't compete against the earnest, nimble Canadians, so the mining cabal ordered the Canadian mine to be closed. Although the cabal had the Secretary General of the UN bumped off in pursuit of profits, Profits were now secondary to simply making an American mine seem more profitable. All right. Anyway, the mining cabal got on the blower with the Canadian mine's president, a certain Brian Mulrooney, and ordered him to shut it down. Mulrooney dutifully complied. Mulrooney is no dope. He had been carefully trained by the cabal to one day take the reins of power in Canada as prime minister and do the work of the cabal. One of Mulrooney's earliest rewards for his obedience was his sexy, vivacious wife, Mila Mulrooney. Mila was not only a pert 19-year-old when she married the 30-something Mulrooney, but she was so much chattel and insurance to her father. Her father was yet another lapdog of the conspiracy. See, her father was none other than Dmitri Pivniki. Yeah. Dmitri Pivniki. Yeah. Who? Uh, well... Pivniki was a professor of psychiatry at McGill University. He worked at Montreal's Allen Memorial Institute, which was famously involved with CIA mind control experiments. Although the experiments were run by one Ewan Cameron, and I can find no link between Pivniki and Cameron's experiments, the conspiracy would have it that Mila was offered up to the influential Mulrooney, and in return Mulrooney would protect Pivniki from any future prosecution. Cameron, who I guess only had sons, or maybe tire-biter daughters, was left to take the fall. Right, Mulrooney eventually became Prime Minister of Canada, and then negotiated the Canadian-American Free Trade Deal, which was later superseded by NAFTA, which, you know, added in Mexico. 
All right, with that set up in background in mind, the real conspiracy, uh, cryptically called the planned destruction of Canada, involves, brace yourself, dams. As in uh, Aswan High, Hoover, the Grand Coulee, the Three Gorges, Beaver, dams. <sighs> Leave it to Canadians to cook up a theory about world domination through dumping a bunch of cement in the middle of a river. In the case of Canada, Canada's destruction would come about by putting into place dams up near Canada's James Bay, which is just south of Hudson's Bay. The intent of this project, which was a real project and proposed in 1959, is to add new sources of water into the Great Lakes system. Amazingly, as far back as 1959, some scientists and engineers were envisioning the effects of pollution and increased water use of the Great Lakes. Not only are the Great Lakes an important source of fresh water for millions of people, and a great place to catch perch for a summer fish fry, but they're important to the transportation of goods. If you look at a map, you can get a cargo ship from basically any place in the world, with an ocean port, to pretty much a third of the way into the North American continent by coming up the St. Lawrence River and then cruising to the western shores of Lake Superior, the big lake which from the Chippewa on down they call Gitchigumi. But this whole plan to dam northern Ontario and Quebec so cargo ships don't start running aground is a damn lie. It's all a plan to ship water, our fresh, clean, pure, honest, and noble Canadian water, to those damn duplicitous Americans. And you know they're just going to use it to brew their Starbucks coffee and make their wimpy American beer. So, they got to be stopped. But there's a small spanner, which is a wrench, in the plans of those water-stealing Britney Spears hoo-hoo photographing Americans. And it's GATT, as in the uh, General Agreement on Trades and Tariffs. According to the conspiracy nuts, GATT makes export of Canada's water illegal under some clause that ostensibly bans, quote, free-flowing water from being considered an exportable good. The logic goes, if you dam it, it's no longer free-flowing, becomes a good, and then you're free to pipe it right down to California to fill up Jed Clampett's cement pond, and right into Hugh Hefner's grotto hot tub, assuming the bank hasn't seized his grotto. First problem with this, I, I can find nothing in the GATT agreement that restricts the sale or export of, quote, free-flowing water. I find a lot of conspiracy types repeating the phraseology, but none bother to provide an actual source. So the major premise alone is questionable. And coming back to my long-standing willingness to put my nickel down and state what it would take me to falsify my beliefs, my first goalpost would be to show me a GATT document with this clause that defines free-flowing water as not being a good and water behind the dam as uh, an exportable good. Second problem arguing against this position is uh, Article 11, which has been sitting in GATT since about 1948. That actually prevents governments from preventing the export of water. I won't read the full text, and I'll link to it in the show notes uh, on the website www.yrad.com forward slash cs, but the passage roughly reads, uh, Article 11, no prohibition or other restrictions other than duties shall be instituted on the importation of any product or on the exportation or sale for export of any product destined for the territory of any other contracting party. Article 20 and Article 21 lay out some exceptions, like you can't export plutonium or main battle tanks to anyone of your choosing. 
Also, there's a clause that allows a nation to restrict, quote, exhaustible natural resources, and water might arguably be one. However, the clause only allows an export restriction if the nation restricts domestic consumption. In other words, you can't restrict natural gas, claiming it's exhaustible, if your own nation is burning it with abandon. So, assuming erecting a bunch of dams magically makes water an exportable good, Canadian voters aren't necessarily going to be too friendly to our swimming pool in skinny-dipping water being piped south to fill up American pools in skinny-dipping holes. The obvious solution would be to simply make all of Canada's water part of America, which would mean making Canada a part of America. No more problem with export restrictions when the water doesn't have to cross international borders, right? Of course, Canadians to the last don't want to start spelling words like color and honor with one less letter, although I'm not sure why they wouldn't. Less typing. And we sure don't want to be required to buy handguns and start shooting our teachers, and we sure don't want to give up our free health care and all those exciting waiting lists for MRI scans. So the plan, according to a newspaper called the Michael Journal, is to push Canada into a state of economic crisis. The Michael Journal itself is a pretty funny little entity. It is, or, or was, the newspaper of a now-defunct Canadian political party called uh, Social Credit, a.k.a. the SoCreds. The SoCreds had this nutty idea that you can just print money to pay for things. Need a new bridge? No problem. The Canadian Mint can just print enough $100 bills to pay for the bridge. The party seems to have died when people eventually got wise to the inherent problems with this plan. Currency traders who make our Florida vacation cost $800 are going to make our Florida vacation cost $1,600 if the SoCreds just magically double the number of Canadian dollars. Canadians don't like paying a lot for Florida vacation, and we simply won't support any party that is not sensitive to this issue. Anyway, once Canada is in a state of economic chaos, we'll be ripe for the taking. Canadians will quickly welcome a make-work project like the, like the dam project and happily sell our water for shortened bread lines. If that doesn't work, then fifth column types will move Quebec to finally separate from Canada, touching off a civil war. Yeah, right. And then the 10th Mountain Division, based at Fort Drum, New York, will quickly enter Canada to stabilize the situation. Many conspiracy nuts in Canada are quite suspicious of the intent and basing of the 10th Mountain Division. Its proximity to the Canadian border works into paranoid fears about invasion. See, the location in upstate New York makes it ideal to seize, in one quick thrust, Toronto, Ottawa, and Montreal. Control the St. Lawrence Seaway and the Great Lakes, and basically cut uh, eastern Canada off from western Canada which doesn't sound like such a bad idea sometimes. Many conspiracy nuts claim that the 10th Mountain Division's training betrayed its purpose as having role of seizing Canada. It didn't at all seem to be training for mountain warfare, according to the conspiracy nuts, but was in fact training only for taking over Canada. And it's quite true, it seems, the 10th Mountain Division isn't really trained for mountain warfare, despite the name. I'll post a source to that on the website. However, the unit was originally constituted in the early 1980s under the Reagan build-up and called the 10th Light Division, intended as a rapid reaction force for deployment anywhere in the world in short notice. It appears to have been renamed a bit later, taking the name of the historical World War II 10th Mountain Division. 
So, a couple problems with the whole conspiracy theory. First, historically, Quebec only pushes for separation when its economy is on sure footing. During times of economic crisis, talks of independence get put on the back burner. And the whole invasion scenario seems to leave out everything west of Ontario. And can any nation, even the USA, just invade another nation and declare it's now part of them and the world doesn't respond? Alright, that wraps it up for episode 10 of the Conspiracy Skeptic Podcast. We're kind of, uh, what's the opposite of sprinting to the end? Crawling? Wheezing? Anyway, if you're still hanging on at this point, and I appreciate it, I'd like to do a 13th episode where I answer your questions. So, if you have any questions about conspiracies, or you want some clarification on stuff I've said already, uh, please visit the website and click the email link. We'll do a question and answer show to cap it off. It's still a couple episodes away, so uh, but I just want to give you advance notice. So, get thinking. Anyway, thanks for listening.